0: Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Denise Clay Murray is a reporter. She has 30 years of journalism experience and was recently hired by VoteBeat to cover the upcoming elections in Pennsylvania. We'll explain VoteBeat in a second. Denise, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. I appreciate it. So very straightforward question to start. What's your journalism origin story?
1: Ah, the the thing that turned me from Bruce Wayne to Batman. Let me see. I started out wanting to be in journalism long enough to get get to law school. My original goal was to become a civil rights attorney. But then I dated a civil rights attorney. And I, I kind of decided that if law school made you that crazy, I didn't want to go. Plus, as I have been in journalism, doing the job, writing stories, meeting people, asking questions of folks in power that the average Joe or Jane doesn't get to ask those questions, I, I decided I liked it. And I liked the idea that it is one of the few constitutionally protected jobs that we have in this country that you don't need to campaign for. All you need to do is know how to write, know how to report, know how to tell stories in a way that gets people to understand what you're talking about and, and you can do this job.
0: Was there something in your upbringing that lent itself to reporting?
1: Oddly enough, my, I, I'm an army brat. I was, I'm probably one of the few people you'll ever meet that's from Fort Dix, New Jersey. Which no longer exists anymore technically, but my father was a was a news junkie. He watched the six o'clock news with Walter Cronkite every night when he wasn't assigned somewhere for the army. He always read the newspaper, he always made sure that we were up on com- current events so that made me interested in it too, because I would be the one sitting on the couch next to him watching Walter Cronkite on the news or reading what's next in the paper or whatever. So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where I got that from in terms of my family.
0: You've worked for several newspapers, including my former local paper, the Bucks County Career Times. You've worked for a school, Temple University, as a staff writer. You've worked for African-American newspapers. What are some of the highlights of your journalism career?
1: Well, probably there's been, a, there's been a couple. I got to cover the 2008 Democratic National Convention where Barack Obama made history becoming the first person of color to, to lead a major party ticket as president. And that was interesting because I got, to, I got to observe a lot of older African-American reporters, people that had been covering the civil rights movement and, and things that led to this point who were standing there and watching this historic nomination and while they were trying to be as professional as possible, they were also crying because they never thought they'd see this. These were all older men, many of them have passed away since. And just being in that moment watching, not even so much watching it for myself, but watching it through their eyes was really interesting to me. because people always tell you that journalism is the first draft of history and when you're seeing the people who were writing the first draft of history well before you got into the business getting the chance to see this moment that makes having that made having to like travel miles and miles and miles away from my hotel to get to the actual venue or seeing people standing on top of the Pepsi Center with guns drawn. It made all of that not so much of a hassle.
0: Do you remember what you wrote that day?
1: Well, to, to be honest, what I wrote that, I, I kind of kept it straightforward because I was just there to cover the story of this historic nomination. But I ended up writing something afterward about how that moment and seeing the, these black journalists who never thought they'd get to cover the assignment of the first person of color to be president of the United States and how they, how they felt about it. I got to interview some of them. And they were, like I said, you could just see how emotional it was for them. And, and you felt good, because, and I felt good because they got to see it. This was something that they never thought they'd see and they got to see it, they got a byline talking about this particular event. And and that and it's always cool to see.
0: That reminds me of Mike Roiko, the columnist Mm -hmm. in Chicago, being he writing about many years later about the experience of watching Jackie Robinson's first game in Chicago Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing the people around him and observing how they were watching it as compared to how he was watching it as a kid at the time. Mm -hmm. It's it's certainly it's that's it's fascinating to to hear those stories. So back in the early days of the podcast, we interviewed the editor-in-chief of Chalkbeat, a nonprofit that covers education. And at the time, the founder of Chalkbeat, Elizabeth Green, had another thing that she was working on, and it was just kind of in the very developmental stages, if I remember right. That was Votebeat. What's Mm -hmm. Votebeat?
1: Votebeat is a publication whose mission it is to try and demystify the voting process for people. If you've observed the voting process, particularly over the last two federal election cycles for president, you've seen there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of stuff that if if you knew anything at all about voting systems and how they work, you would kind of know that you know, that doesn't make sense or what are you talking about? What VoteBeat does And and what it hopes to do, and what I hope to do as part of it in Pennsylvania, is to demystify the voting process, to make people understand that this is actually how voter rolls work. This is how voting machines work. This is how the process works. And through seeing how the process works, hopefully it'll get more people interested in actually letting their voice be heard in the voting booth. because. Where we, where I am in Philadelphia right now, the most recent election we had was an election for the district attorney. Now that's an important office because the district attorney can determine whether or not you go to jail for you know, a couple of days because it's a misdemeanor charge or whether you go to jail for the rest of your life because it's a capital murder charge. And the fact that only 20% of the people in the entire city that were eligible to vote, voted for this most important office, tells me that having something like VoteBeat that helps them to understand that, yes, not only does your vote count, but here is how it's counted, and and here is why it's important for you to exercise your right to vote. It is so important.
0: So Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Texas are the four states in which reporters are embedded. If you followed election reporting the last couple of years, those seem like logical spots to be. And I'm going to do something here I don't typically do. I'm going to go on a brief monologue just to explain Pennsylvania, because there are two very big state elections, one being in the Senate, Republican Pat Toomey is retiring, and the race is between the Lieutenant Governor, Democrat John Fetterman, and Republican Mehmet Oz, TV personality, the latter of whom was endorsed by Donald Trump. Oz comes with a lot of baggage. I guess related to medical treatments he's espoused, ever changing political positions, and quite simply whether he's ever lived in Pennsylvania. The other is governor. Governor, the governor, current governor, is completing his work due to term limits. The Democrat Attorney General Josh Shapiro is running against a state senator, Doug Mastriano. Specifically commenting about the Republicans here. Mastriano was at the Capitol January 6th for the attempted coup and regularly touts election conspiracy theories that falsely claim that Trump won the election. So there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in Pennsylvania as we head towards November. What are the things you'll be covering with regards to the specifics of, you kind of alluded to it with Philadelphia Attorney General, but what are some of the things that you'll be covering with regards to the state races?
1: Well, particularly how the voting process goes in these races. Like, one of the things I'm working on right now is a piece on a proposal that Republican candidate Doug Mastriano has put forth that he would make everyone re-register to vote. Now, he doesn't really get into the specifics on this. He doesn't say whether it would be like yearly. It doesn't say, he doesn't say, what kind? how often you would have to re-register to vote or anything like that. But this piece I'm working on talks about how there is no way that you could possibly do this because there are at least two federal laws that would make it a non-starter. You can't, under, under the motor voter law, which is the National Voter Registration Act, you can't just kick someone off the voter rolls without giving them an explanation for why you're doing it and giving them an opportunity to stay on the rolls. We have, they have something, and, and this is kind of telling a little bit about what I've been working on the last few days. They have things called five-year notices, which counties sent out to voters that haven't participated in the last two ele- federal election cycles. If they send you a notice and you send it back to them saying, hey, I'm still at this address, I still want to vote, I just didn't vote last time, then they put you back on the active role. But if you don't respond to that and the next federal election comes, if you don't either go to your polling place and sign an affidavit saying, hey, I want to vote, sorry I haven't gotten back to you, let me me do this, or, have, or if you haven't sent them a postcard saying, hey I'm still here I want to vote that's when they take you off the voter laws. You can't just be taken off because somebody thinks that you're actually either dead or voting from somewhere else.
0: So vote beat as, as the way that you're explaining it like it isn't necessarily maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but isn't necessarily digging in on political positions so much as no. examining, all of the things related to essentially just getting to be able to do what everyone has the right over a, a certain age has the right to do.
1: Right. We, what we look at is the system of voting itself. And if you saw the 2020 elections, and even if you're watching the January 6 commission hearings now, you're seeing why that's necessary, why it's necessary to tell the story about what's going on with voting itself. Because there's a lot of misinformation running around out there. I mean, the fact that we had a president of the United States that thought that the vice president of the United States could unilaterally wipe out the votes of over 80 million people, just because he felt like it tells you that there is some education needed, and that is what Vote B hopes to bring to the equation—the education necessary to let voters know exactly how the process works, so that they can use it and they're not confused about it, or they're not susceptible to misinformation about it because they know the truth.
0: Is there a county in particular that's that's interesting with regards to this?
1: Well, because it's the biggest county in the entire Commonwealth, and it always seems to be the county that people who want to practice voter misinformation seem to want to aim at here in Pennsylvania, I would have to say Philadelphia. It's not like Donald Trump said bad things happen in Carbon County. He said bad things happen in Philadelphia, and that's because of, of the makeup of Philadelphia. You, this is a largely, this is a largely black and brown city with that is very much a union town that is very democratic in what has become a swing. It's it, all eyes are on Philadelphia whenever there's an election in Pennsylvania. This city is probably going to get so tired of seeing gubernatorial and Senate candidates that it's not going to know what to do with itself because it's also where most of the people are. The five-county Philadelphia area is where most of the people are, most of the state's population. And because of that, we definitely have to look at how voting is conducted in in those counties because if it's not, if it's conducted in a way where some form of malfeasance happens if there's a computer glitch or something wrong with a machine or any number of things that can have an effect on the election itself. So while I, I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on the five county Philadelphia area, I'll also be looking at Allegheny County because it's got Pittsburgh in it, and again, that's a large that's a large that's one of the large municipalities in Pennsylvania so and, and also a few of the smaller towns because you have places like lehigh county where in the last election the district attorney of lehigh county was going to have armed guards at mail at vote by mail boxes standing guard over them and what and and if you know anything at all about the history of voting in this country particularly for people of color Sometimes going to the voting booth could get you shot, because there was a there was a perception that just because of the color of your skin, you shouldn't have had the right to vote. And when you're when you're like a eighty something year old black woman who grew up during the civil rights era, and you're walking to your vote by mailbox to drop in your ballot and you see some guy. Under the color of authority with a loaded gun on his hip standing by the voting box, that sends a message to you. So it's those are the kinds of things that I, I have a particular sensitivity to some of those kinds of things, but those are among the kinds of things that we're going to be looking at in on vote beat when it comes to Pennsylvania and its voting systems, just to make sure things are. Going the way they're supposed to go and talking about what happens if it doesn't work that way and what can be done about it.
0: So, I'm thinking about this from what your situation is going to be like on election day. And it's striking me that if you're going to do this, you need to have kind of in your head, in all likelihood, a lot of different scenarios for different things that could potentially go wrong. Have you started to think about? About what those could be?
1: Well, I've always believed that to err as human, but to really mess things up, you need a computer. So, since most voting systems are computerized, I'm thinking that you know, maybe a glitch happens there. In Berks County, which includes Reading, Pennsylvania, you had such a glitch that that's currently being investigated. So that's one thing I'll be looking for. Another thing I'll be looking for is what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decides between now and the November elections about mail-in ballots. A couple of months ago, the Commonwealth Court, the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court decided to strike down Act 77, which is the bipartisan legislation passed in 20, I want to say 20, 2018, 2019, that that brought mail-in voting to Pennsylvania and the Supreme Court is now listening to arguments about whether or not mail-in voting was unconstitutional because of how, because it wasn't passed through a constitutional amendment, which is the argument that the people who are anti-mail-in voting are making. We're also keeping an eye on that because if the Supreme Court decides to strike down mail-in voting, that means they're going to have to find double the poll workers around the the Commonwealth. They're gonna have to bring in more machines. They're gonna have to have more polling places. And even if they were to make that decision today, there's not enough time to do all that by November. So we're looking at a potentially chaotic situation.
0: (laughs) I was gonna use the word chaos, right? As you were finishing up there, I was gonna say chaos as well. Last question on this topic, before we say we're into some of your other writing, Who 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 do you view your audience? Who are you writing for here?
1: Well, I think I'm writing for everybody. I think I'm writing for everybody who's interested in how the voting system works, how to make sure your votes count and what to do in the event that you are being impeded from voting, how to make sure that you're on the voter rolls, how to make sure that you you know what to do if you're not on the voter rolls. I like to think that we're writing for everybody and because everybody needs this information
0: and VoteBeat's model is such that your articles could run anywhere, right?
1: Right. And, and that's what I think is probably the neatest thing about this. The fact that newsrooms have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller over the last 20 years. So covering the stuff that we cover at VoteBeat is not something that, say, the Philadelphia Inquirer is going to be able to do because you can't devote the amount of staff that you would need to do it and do it alone. I mean, granted, the Enquirer has Jonathan Lai, who was one of the best election reporters possibly in the country. But what most of what he covers is the elections themselves. To talk about the systems is something he probably doesn't have time to do. And fortunately, VoteBeats, since we cover the systems, we can partner with people who are covering the elections themselves and give take a two-pronged approach to both the election and, and also the systems that make it go. And I, I like that a lot because it, it's needed.
0: It's one of the cool things about the model is you said it's it's work that can be seen everywhere. It helps newspapers Newsrooms all around the country. So I'm looking at, at the other writing that you've done. Most recently, for the Sunday Sun, food review, a theater review, a profile of a charter school founder, another profile of a temple of the Temple Women's Lacrosse coach, and the trial of a city councilman. The Sunday Sun, an African American newspaper in Philadelphia. What is a day in the life like in terms of the coverage you, you do for them?
1: Well, when I was doing most most of the stuff that you you, you heard. That, that you that you mentioned was stuff that I did as an independent journalist. I used to call, they used to call us freelancers, but <laughs> I stopped calling myself freelancer when too many people got stuck on the free part and I had to go and say, hey, please pay me so I don't have to get a lawyer on you. I, When you cover politics, like I do, Sometimes you need to take on other interests in terms of coverage don't become someone you hate and part of part of what I was doing for the sun was doing stuff that sure I covered politics for them but I got I started getting interested in food writing after the 2016 election in fact, after the 20 if the 2016 election hadn't been such a slog for me in terms of coverage, I probably wouldn't be at Vote Beat right now because I didn't start thinking about being on the other side of elections, not being on the campaign trail but being on the other side where we cover voting systems. I hadn't even thought about that before 2016 because covering politics was so much fun for me. But 2016 wasn't fun. 2020 wasn't much better. And I was looking at 2024. And I'm like, if I absolutely have to do this, I really don't want to. And I started writing about food and and movies, because that also was kind of how I started my career, doing movie reviews and concert reviews and, and, and that kind of thing. And I started doing it because I needed a break from just covering politics. And that also kind of goes back to my journalism origin story. Journalism, no matter what kind of job you're doing, no matter what your beat is, no matter what, it is never the same day twice. And the fact that it was never the same day twice really benefited me as a freelancer because I had no idea what I was going to be doing when I, I went to my computer and said, okay, what's the day look like?
0: Is there something you've recently written along those lines specifically uh, that you take a lot of pride in that you, that you want to just tell us about?
1: Well, I, w- I was doing some freelancing for an organization called Love Now Media. They're part of a consortium that Resolve Philly does called Broken Philly, which looks at poverty in, these, in the Commonwealth, on the nation's poorest big city, which unfortunately Philadelphia is. And there was a subsection that they were doing called the toll, which looked at the toll that gun violence takes on the city. But instead of looking at just the murder rate itself, we looked at the underlying stuff that happens to people if they are murdered or families of murder victims or families of people who have been shot. And I wrote a piece on the hidden cost of gun violence. It was a four part series. And we did like a podcast to go with it. And it looked at such things as how much it costs for you to bury someone and what kind of assistance is available for families and what are the things that could keep you from getting that assistance, how much it costs to put like a ramp on your home, if someone that someone in your family has been shot and they're paralyzed. It looked into it looked into all of these different things. Most of it was stuff I had never I never known anything about. I I would go out and I would cover the shooting and what the city's response is and what they're going to do about the gun violence problem and what city council is going to do from a budgetary perspective and all of that. But I had never talked to the people who were directly affected by this to find out how they were coping and how they were dealing with all of this from a financial perspective. And when you're dealing with communities that are already dealing with poverty and like are knee knee deep in poverty and can't see a way out, adding like a $9,000 funeral into the budget is just going to not, can, can take you from slightly balancing to just falling down and sinking, especially if you're told by the state agency that controls whether or not you get assistance that because your loved one was perceived as causing their own death by gun violence, you're not going to get any help. That just makes things infinitely worse because then people have to figure out a way to help you out and not unless you are hanging out with multimillionaires, no one's just got $9,000 running, laying around.
0: One of the themes of this podcast, particularly recently is humanizing stories like that. What did you go about doing to humanize that story?
1: I had to interview a lot of people who were actually dealing with this. And one of the things that we sometimes don't do well as journalists is recognizing when to be quiet. There, I always used to Every once in a while, Temple University would let me teach a journalism class. And what I would tell my students is whatever you do, if you see somebody who has just witnessed a loved one being shot or has just been informed that their family has been lost in a fire, do not walk up to them and ask them, how do you feel? Because if they don't cuss you out, they are much better people than I would be in that moment. There is a certain amount of sensitivity that you have to have if you're covering a story where you are asking a woman about possibly the worst day of her life, the murder of her, the day that her child was murdered. And there were a lot of interviews I did where people were actually crying because No matter how long ago it was, and no matter how much support you have, or if you started a nonprofit to try to help other parents, that still hurts. That is still a pain that you are dealing with, and it is never going to go away because parents are not supposed to bury their children. That is not the natural order of things. And when that order is disrupted through no fault of the child's own because someone got mad and instead of doing the kinds of conflict resolution that it's an argument, you might have a fist fight and everybody goes home, they decided to shoot your child, that's, that, that, that just takes something that's incomprehensible and makes it truly incomprehensible and i really had to focus on if this person doesn't want to talk to me what do i do and most of the time because i would just sit there and let them talk i ended up getting some really good information i didn't really have to ask a whole lot of questions
0: you've done a lot of different things within reporting all the different things that you've talked about. As we move to the final two questions here, I ask what we call here the Emmy question in honor of Emmy Liederman, who used to help out on the podcast. Is there a void in the industry that younger journalists can look to fill?
1: Oh, there are several. I would like to see more journalists not necessarily go into covering politics, but go into covering... How politics impacts communities. I mean, we talk a lot about the horse race and who did what to whom and everything like that. But where we need to where we need to sit down and, and talk to people is just covering their everyday lives, because there's a whole lot of really interesting we miss doing that.
0: I'm glad that you said that because that has been a, a primary focus of, of this podcast throughout our, I guess, 70-something episodes to this point. Last question. Is there a journalist, The, the podcast is called The Journalism Salute. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work?
1: Actually, there is a community journalist, like a community journalism organization that has been getting some of its moment in the sun but i think i'd like to spotlight them because they they really deserve it and it's mlk 50. it's based out of i believe memphis tennessee and it got its name because it it started doing its community reporting on the 50th anniversary of the death of dr king and they talk a lot about poverty and the series that made me really pay attention to them is they were doing a series on this hospital that was just robbing people with medical bills and just charging them really ridiculous sums of money. And most of the population they were dealing with were people who are poor. And because of MLK 50's reporting, that hospital ended up having, ended up having to give people back a whole lot of money and get rid of a whole lot of bills because they were found to be unfair. They were found to be usury. So if there was any if there was that was one of those organizations that if it didn't require me moving to Tennessee, I would have loved to work for them because they're they're really good at what they do. There's an organization, there's a there's a foundation that started by a person who's become a really good friend of mine. Her name is Tracy Powell. It's called the Pivot Fund. And what the Pivot Fund does is help underserved communities create their own media. They, they give out grants to these organizations so that they can create their own media, like podcasts and, and programs and, and news organizations and different things. And that's important to me because. Let's face it, finding someone to help you with startup capital is hard under any circumstances. But if you're um, a group of journalists of color that don't necessarily have business benefactors, Lenfest can't necessarily finance everybody. So having something like a pivot fund, my friend used to work at the, at the Democracy Fund and decided that she could do a, she wanted to do something more. So she started her own fund. And I'm hoping that it really takes off because it's really doing good work with what it's doing so far.
0: Thepivotfund.org. We will include a link in the show notes. Denise Clay Murray, thank you for taking the time to join us. We will be following your work. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. If you like this episode, you will almost certainly like the podcast Democracy in Danger, put together by the UVA Media Lab. All over the world, liberal democracy is getting turned upside down. Autocratic leaders are using populist appeals, the partisan media, and the power of their offices to short-circuit deliberation and consensus. They flout the rule of law, unleash the police on their own people, suppress dissent, and attack voting rights. So what can you do about it? Join hosts Will Hitchcock and Sivavad Yonathan on Democracy in Danger, a show that puts the illiberal turn in context. New episodes post on Wednesdays. They actually just finished their most recent season. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod. And you can email us at Salute at gmail.com.